This is episode 282 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today we talk to Julie Defeat Dillon about the non-diet approach to PCOS. And this is for everyone, because you're going to learn today how diet culture creeps into diagnosed condition. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Going Beyond the Food Show. I'm Stephanie Dodzie, clinical nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor, creator of the Going to Beyond the Food Method, and after a 25-year dieting career that started at the age of 12, I decided to say hell no to diet culture and hell yes to living my life to the fullest in my now body. And I made it my mission to help smart, successful women like you live confidently, unconditionally, right now. Ready, sister? Let's do this. Hey, if you're new to the Going Beyond the Food Show, our podcast roadmap has been designed with you in mind. With over 250 episodes available to listen, it can feel overwhelming to know which episode to prioritize for you. The podcast guide answers the top five questions women have when they enter our world of going beyond the food to unlearn diet culture. To get your free copy of our podcast roadmap guide, head over to stephaniedozier.com forward slash roadmap or use the hyperlink in the show notes. I'll see you on the other side. Hello, my sisters. Welcome back. I'm excited about this conversation because I found a magical friend. Julie is someone that I recently created a relationship with over social media, and it's like I found an old friend. You know, one of those friends you've known all your life that you just like know what each other is thinking. This is what you're going to feel in today's interview between me and Julie. What's interesting is I actually encountered Julie four or five years ago on a road trip, like not her physically, but her podcast the Love Food Podcast, I remember vividly driving, I was doing a road trip in Maine, and I was listening, binge listening to podcasts, and her podcast was one that I listened for a whole afternoon. And she has a very unique approach to her podcast as she reads letter from listeners, and then she answers them. So it's very short, but very powerful podcast with a completely different twists. So anyway, when we reconnected a few months ago, I was building these lists of experts in each health condition for upcoming podcasts. And I asked her to come on the podcast to talk about PCOS because, okay, this podcast may not be for you because you don't have PCOS, but I still want you to listen because you're going to understand how diet culture goes into medical treatment and leads you to believe that the only way to address your health condition is through restricting food and losing weight. And that is the predominant angle with PCOS. And I see it when I work with my client that have been diagnosed with PCOS. It's always like this big struggle. Like my doctor told me the only way for me to get better is to do a very restrictive diet and to lose weight. So how can I lose weight and be an intuitive eater? That's the question that we're going to answer today on the podcast. Were, but not we, Julie 
is going to take you through the non-diet approach to PCOS. That's all she does. 100% of her time is dedicated to helping women in a non-diet approach to PCOS. She is the expert in the field of PCOS. So listen to the episodes for yourself to understand how diet culture spins our medical diagnosis and treatment. But also, if you do know anyone that has been diagnosed with PCOS and that are not listening to Julie, you'll want to send this podcast episode to them because it has the potentiality to change how they interact with their health condition. So here's what you're going to learn on the episode today. First of all, what the heck is PCOS and how it intersects with diet culture. Then we're going to talk about treatment, the proposed treatment currently, low-carbon PCOS. And Julie is very well-versed in science because that's all she does is PCOS. She's aware of all the recent research. She's going to pull that in to the teaching today, like to be science-based evidence to PCOS treatment. So we'll talk about low-carb, we'll talk about weight loss, we'll talk about IBS, disordered eating, inflammation, all the stuff. And then she'll take you through the non-diet approach to PCOS. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for having me on. I think this is going to be a wonderful conversation. We have already been talking for 15 minutes without recording and we're like best friend already. So totally, totally. <laughs> let's educate people on PCOS. So let's look at PCOS from the lands of diet culture. Like first of all, for people that are not familiar with what PCOS is, let's start there and how it intersects with diet culture. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. So PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is an endocrine disorder that starts in the brain. And it basically has this like set of symptoms that result into like a hormonal imbalance. And for many people with PCOS, it's, I think it's estimated like 95% at this point have high circulating insulin levels. And I think that's where diet culture comes in. Cause when you hear insulin, you know, diet culture is like, Ooh, I like that. And then there's also this connection with chronic inflammation with PCOS as well. So another time for diet culture to just suction cup itself to it. Um, but PCOS is something that unfortunately, a lot of people who have it are told that they caused it, um, that maybe they gained too much weight, or they ate the wrong things. Um, but that's not the case. It's actually something that's passed down through families. There's a, a, a genetic connection to PCOS. And so we know that people don't cause it by behaviors or weight change. And um, unlike people who are like influencers on Instagram, it cannot be cured. And it's a it's a chronic condition. And so even if someone did everything that was like, quote, perfect, I, that doesn't exist. That's why I'm rolling my eyes right now. Like <laughs> if you did everything perfectly, like PCOS would still continue to get worse because it is a chronic condition. So, um, you know, the thing that's really, there's many 
many parts of PCOS that are challenging and misunderstood, and it's um, largely invisible. But um, most of the the focus on it is the reproductive kind of consequences to it. But there's also metabolic and psychological consequences, and it because of the hormonal imbalance, it ends up affecting just about every cell of the body. Um, and so people have experiences not only with infertility, but also with fatigue and dry eye and thyroid issues and really intense carb cravings that um, as a dietitian, that's where I was really first kind of introduced to what PCOS even was. And um, because of the connection with insulin, there's a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people with PCOS in a higher weight body. And so um, that's where a lot of people are pushed to diet. And when I early on first started working with people with PCOS, I was really struggling because, you know, I was this anti-diet dietitian. I called myself an anti-diet zealot. Like I was like, I am against (laughs) this. But then I was like seeing people with PCOS and I'm like, what do I do? I remember looking furiously through my textbooks and everything and everything's like, treat it like diabetes and make sure people lose weight or don't gain weight. And I'm like, well, that doesn't work for most people. So why would that work for PCOS? And um, yeah, so I'm excited to dive into like how diet culture really messes up the PCOS experience and um, makes it worse. Yeah, because that's really what we're seeing now is that people that have been diagnosed with PCOS, and I want to get into if we can even get diagnosed with it, but they said they have PCOS. They've been through the ringer with the typical approach, nothing has worked. And they're like, now I'm landing into the world of intuitive eating. So how do I approach it with intuitive eating and non-diet? But can we get diagnosed with PCOS? Or is it, from what I read, it's not diagnosable as a condition. Well, it's like, it's ambiguous, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's that's a di- what I thought. <laughs> Technically, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So by, you get diagnosed with it by not having other things. <laughs> um, and there's this Rotterdine criteria where if you, a person meets two out of the three of these uh, criteria, then you meet the criteria for PCOS as long as you don't have these other things. Um, and so that includes um, irregular or absent periods, signs of high androgens, either through blood work or just through um, visual kind of assessment. Or And then the third one is these kind of cysts on the ovaries. And the cysts is in quotes, of course, because it's really not cysts, it's multiple follicles. And it's really funny, of course, because you could not, you could have PCOS and not have cysts on your ovaries. Ah, so it's not a determining factor. Yeah. So a lot of people will get diagnosed with PCOS through maybe, um, they'll go to their doctor and say, you know, I have all this hair on my chin or I'm losing hair on my head. And, um, the doctor will, you know, do an assessment and be like, Oh yeah, I think you have PCOS. And, and then uh, five years later, they'll go to another doctor and they'll get an ultrasound done. The doctor's like, well, I don't see any cysts, so you don't have it. And, but that's, you know, that's a misdiagnosis because yeah, you don't have to have cysts on your ovaries in order to actually have the condition. Do you see a lot of people self-diagnosing? Yes, yes. I see that too. Yeah, me too. And I and and there's this interesting kind of like dichotomy. I don't know if you see this too, Stephanie, but like I, it seems like health professionals and medical providers often are like, "Oh, I think we're diagnosing PCOS too much." And yet uh, the way I experience people with PCOS are like, "It took me forever to get this diagnosis." And or they'll say, "I was working with a doctor for years and years." And then I'll see on my printout that I have PCOS and no one ever told me. And they'll say, doctor, why don't you tell me? And doctor's like, well, I didn't know what really to do with it. So I just never told you. And I don't, that just freaks of like misogyny to me. Just not a, not a cool thing to do, you know? 
So let's talk about how diet culture plays into this. And I'll just tell you, like, when I was taught about PCOS, it was weight loss and low carb. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was told to do and to recommend to people. Um, And that's what I hear all the time for people. But But I have PCOS, so I have to lose weight. I hear the same things. And when I first started working with PCOS, it was almost 20 years ago. And that was what I kind of knew to do too. That's why I panicked because I was already practicing as uh, an anti-diet dietitian. I had just met Evelyn Tribbley at a conference and read intuitive eating. And I was like, oh, this is it. These are, these are the dietitians that are like me. And um, so I, it was really confusing and hard because it, it, the way that it's portrayed is that a person has to diet to treat it. And um, there's some interesting things that I see with PCOS that um, make people even more susceptible to diet culture harm than people without PCOS. And, you know, part of it is the physiology, um, having high circulating insulin levels. Um, Again, you know, insulin is this kind of diet culture, like buzzword that it's a bad thing. But, um, and I can see like if someone was like a, I don't know, a test tube or a Petri dish, like removing carbohydrates or sugar may do something. But of course, we are not robots or <laughs> lab um, studies. Yeah, exactly. And with the the insulin with PCOS, what's happening is that there's some kind of defect or deficiency with um, what the theory is at this point is there's some kind of defect or deficiency with a type of B vitamin that leads to a buildup of insulin. And because the insulin is not able to like actually allow the cell to open up to let sugar go in or like let the, the, the energy from food that gets broken down into sugar, the, the body's starving. And so it's like, well, okay, so let's send out some more insulin and let's send some carb cravings. And so it's just like this constant kind of buildup. And then people are told, oh, your insulin's high. That means you need to cut out carbs and sugar, which just then makes the cravings more intense and more intense. And at the same time, um, for many people with PCOS, they also have high circulating testosterone, which um, is an androgen. And that is something that further enhances that like appetite and craving and testosterone and insulin can kind of, they like to connect together. So they will increase together. They just kind of like help each other go higher. And um, it just makes for more intense cravings. And unfortunately, the way um, for many people, and again, not everyone with PCOS, for, for many people, this is where weight starts to also change. And so people are then told, well, you're gaining too much weight, your insulin levels are high. And um, so you need to cut out these things and it'll work. And you and I know, both know, Stephanie, after you work with like, three or four people with PCOS, people with PCOS are like, totally not eating, <laughs> like, or they're eating very little, and still having these cravings, and following everything to a T doing keto or whatever low carb thing is in vogue. And it's still not quote working, you know, weight's not changing or anything like that. And what ends up happening, I don't, I'm, I have a feeling you see this too, is that because of this emphasis of like, let's lower insulin by restriction, then it ends up making, um, the body just crave even more. And that's when people are like, well, I can't stop eating. Once I start, I must be a food addict. Um, I must be doing it wrong when in reality, the body is just trying to survive. And there's lots of ways that we can help insulin levels and testosterone levels go down. If someone's wanting to do those things without torturing the body. Um, 
and focusing on weight, unfortunately, all it ends up doing long term, like dieting and focusing on weight is further increase insulin levels. That's something we've been able to see in research. And um, I mentioned earlier about inflammation, um, another kind of diet culture, like love story. It's like <laughs> attack, <laughs> attending to inflammation. But uh, people with PCOS with this like hormonal imbalance, they um, end up having to like, their body has to go through so much just to heal from the hormonal imbalance. And this causes this kind of pro-inflammatory state and restriction, dieting, whatever you want to call it. Um, and cutting out foods, focusing on, on dieting and like weight cycling also further increases inflammation. And so, um, and that's long-term short-term, of course, it lowers insulin and inflammation, but I mean, we want to help people for the rest of their lives, not just for the next six weeks. Right. So, um, so yeah, that's like the big complicated mess. And like for like the PCOS is like physiology and diet culture. And, um, some people don't like when I say this, but I really think diet culture is harder on people with PCOS than people without, like it's so much harder on their body and it hurts them more because of this physiology. Well, we can just think about weight stigma and the impact of fat phobia on PCOS and not even get access to proper treatment or proper diagnosis. Just putting the blame on the weight. Well, the weight caused that because you eat too much, right? Wow. That's what I hear all the time. Yes, it's so, so discriminatory, um, whether it's just having to hear over and over again how a person's not eating enough. Like I've had so many people that I've worked with who are like, yeah, my doctor just told me to go on XYZ calorie diet, um, but I've been eating half of that. And they didn't even ask me how I'm eating. And they just assumed because my weight is continuing to go up or hasn't gone down that I'm obviously eating more than that. And so they told me this amount and I'm like eating half of that. Um, and so the people getting that over and over again, um, I can appreciate not wanting to go back, you know, wanting to avoid seeing or experiencing this, like, and healthcare avoidance is something that's well documented and how it hurts like heart health and, um, you know, overall just the, the, the way that people have access to health, how that really is problematic. And, um, and then also discriminatory, you know, there's so many people with PCOS who need access to reproductive medicine for many different reasons and can't even get an appointment with a reproductive endocrinologist because their BMI is too high. They can't even get an appointment. That blew my mind. Like I, I, I had Nicole Salmona on the call on the (laughs) podcast here a few months ago and she just blew my mind. Like people, are not even accepted to have an appointment. Can't even get in. And some people need reproductive medicine in order to have a family. Like they have to have it. <laughs> and so it's just, it yeah. blows my mind and it's acceptable. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because as you say that, as you say that people with PCOS don't want to go seek treatment, that perhaps is why we're seeing wellness diet attacking PCOS from that health food medicine system. And then people get dragged into it because they don't want to go see the traditional medical system. Is that perhaps what explains such passion for the wellness diet on PCOS? Yeah, I think there's something to that. It's, it's more accessible. Um, it's more anonymous and, um, I hope not everyone thinks this, but like many people I talk to with PCOS, they do blame themselves. They're like, even if they are eating very little, they still feel like if I just did it perfectly or did it better, 
Um, and then maybe I could follow through with what the doctor is ordering. So then I could have what I'm wanting. And, um, so yeah, like, I think there's a lot of preying on vulnerability in the PCOS, uh, experience. So, um, and wellness culture and all it's kind of like gimmicks and kind of potions and things like it's, yeah, it's accessible. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, so we talked about the traditional medical, uh, point of view on PCOS, but when you fall into what people may not, I want to make sure everybody knows what, when I talk about wellness diet, I talk about the health approach with food to PCOS that you'll see through functional medicine, not to name it. And other people that, that say that the solution is food. Is that the solution? Well, you know, I don't know what the solution is. <laughs> like That's the thing. Like, no yeah. solution, right? No, there's no solution. And I think there's going to be lots of different things that we can encourage people to experiment with. There is no cure though. And I also think like food as medicine or food as the solution has many layers to me that is privileged and problematic. And, um, I also, um, I mean, this is just my own personal kind of value system. I'm okay with taking medication and I know not everyone in the world accepts medication and not everyone has to like, that's, it's just like what your value system is. But, um, there's a lot of shame for a lot of people with PCOS taking metformin or taking antidepressants and things. And, and for many people, that's what allows them to actually have energy to be able to ovulate, um, to feel more okay in their body. And so, I, that's why I get kind of cringy when I hear about food as the solution. And because it, it's almost like in this kind of hidden shame then about, well, what if I want to still take my medication or need to take my medication? Or what about people who are just going to have symptoms and maybe they don't want to do anything about it or they can't do anything about it, you know? And um, does that mean they're a failure then? I, I, I just think it gets so messy, you know, in that regard. So. Well, and it's also sustainability. Like if you mm -hmm. approach it with food, which I know many people are, have done this approach, you will, because it's not curable, you will then have to apply those restrictions technically for the rest of your life. If you want to get those results, am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I, because it's chronic too, what I'm observing, um, again, over the last 20 years, just in my own practice is that as people get older with PCOS, um, some things start to feel a little bit easier, like the reproductive kind of side of things, but the metabolic and psychological consequences tend to get worse over time. So if something quote worked in your twenties or thirties, even if you keep doing it the same way or double down on it in your forties, you just may find it just doesn't do it the same. And, uh, then you may need medication, um, and you need, may need to access your doctor more. And that's not a failure. It's just like, it's just a chronic issue. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the mental health aspect of that. What is typically associated with PCOS from a mental health perspective? Well, since PCOS starts in the brain, it, it starts in the hypothalamus. Um, mood disorders are very common. And um, I, you know, I see people with, um, depression, anxiety, ADD, bipolar disorder, like those are all things that are really, really common with PCOS in particular. Um, I, I've just noticed that anxiety with PCOS seems to be a different kind of anxiety than I see with 
people without PCOS. Um, and the reason why I think it probably piques my interest is my own. I don't have PCOS. I haven't named yet that in your episode yet, but um, I do have an anxiety disorder. So I feel like really cozy with anxiety and the anxiety that I hear about with PCOS just sounds so much harder, um, more debilitating. And um, the, the solutions that a lot of us with anxiety disorders that we find that kind of help us just to get through our day don't even seem to touch it with people with PCOS and their anxiety. And um, again, that's not everybody, but I just know for many people and I'm, I'm assuming someone listening is like, Oh yes, yeah. that's totally my experience. So if you have a anxiety and PCOS and you may be wondering, Oh, I didn't know they were connected. They, they probably are. Well, without getting too geeky, but if we think about <laughs> insulin and cortisol, yes. yeah, yes. Right. For people who don't know, cortisol is the hormone of chronic stress. Like if we just think of the link between two, like what creates what is it the high insulin that creates the high level of cortisol, but high level of cortisol will create anxiety. Yeah, yeah. And even um, I remember talking to Christy Harrison um, on her podcast uh, a few years ago, and, and she was like, yeah, I can appreciate too, just even with higher insulin levels, how when the body is like, undernourished, starving and high insulin, how that would be anxiety producing. So um, I was like, yeah, that's a great point, Christy. (laughs) Undernourished and also like coming back to the the wellness diet approach to PCOS, which is food restriction and low carb and keto and all of that. That's in itself, it's a big ball of stress. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And you're like dealing with like those cravings at the same time. Um, and then you're going, trying to go to the doctor and access healthcare and you're getting like, um, experience an oppression in those visits, like all that stress, like that is something that, yeah, we know that's like, not only is that just not, not okay, you know, for a human to experience, but also that type of stress is connected to like heart disease and more likelihood of diabetes and more inflammation and all that stuff. But also, yeah, like as a human, you should just not be treated like that. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm interested to ask this question. So you have a non-diet approach to PCOS, right? So you Mm. work with people um, and you have a course about that. You have a community. So clearly you don't approach it with food restriction and or weight loss. Mm -hmm. So have you seen people that just by relaxing on food rules and the pressure on weight, their insulin level as a byproduct has reduced? Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, it depends for sure. And, and um, for many people, they're not eating enough. And, um, you know, it's it's really, um, it's always surprising, but also it breaks my heart because whenever I ask someone with PCOS, like, hey, are you eating enough? And they'll say, no one has ever asked me that before. Oh, heartbreaking. Yes. Um, like, and, and so, yeah, if you're a clinician working with people with PCOS, make sure you ask someone that because even just being asked that question is validating in a sense of like, yeah, like as a human, you need to eat enough, like you deserve to have nourishment. Um, and so when people are eating enough, and then they start on either medications or supplements, there's a few that I recommend. Um, and then it, it, individually, some people will, may need some um, their own unique recommendations, just like with adding supplements or medications in. And that's when, yeah, we start to see insulin levels go down. And when insulin levels go down, the cravings are just not as intense. Um, I won't say they go away because cravings are normal. Um, we all have them. And um, and then that's also where people will, will often start to focus on things like sleep and making sure you're getting mm. enough rest and sleep. 
make sure there's, if there's a sleep disorder, treating that. And after that kind of space, um, you know, eating enough, um, possibly supplementing and um, getting enough rest, people sometimes come in and they're like, oh, you know what? I'm kind of craving some activity. This is weird. I want to move my body. <laughs> what should I do? You know? Um, and that's the way as a dietitian, I'm like, that's a way for me to know, okay, insulin's coming down that you, and, um, it's an important moment for me as a, a clinician. Cause I'm like, we need to write down everything that you just experimented with because for you as the individual, that's what's helping your PCOS today, you know? Um, and so that's, you know, when you were saying too, like how to bring insulin downs, it's really is very individual. And I encourage my clients to experiment. Like there's a few different things that they can experiment with. Um, as long as they're eating enough, like that's always first, you have to eat enough first. That's baseline. Yes. Yes. It's like, I wouldn't say it's pointless, but it's really not going to be worth your time <laughs> to try anything else if you're not eating enough, because your body needs to heal and recover. And, you know, talking about intuitive eating and um, accessing the intuitive eating, I know when I work with people without PCOS on intuitive eating, it, it often takes a good year, you know, just to like, go through all the steps. And I remember when I was trained by Evelyn and Elise, that's what they would always said too, is like, it's, it's on average, you know, a very general average, it's about a year of just like trying to connect with your body again. And I find it takes a couple years for people with PCOS just to recover from diet culture restriction. And, um, so take your time, you know, make sure you give yourself the space it needs to, to recover. Yeah. And in recover from discrimination and weight stigma, but also building the skill set to continue to go through the medical system, understanding that it's filled with weight stigma and having to deal with that ongoing also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it'd be great if like, weight stigma would go away. No. Well, <laughs> but, it will at some point. Yeah, we have to be hopeful, right, Stephanie? <laughs> I am an eternal positive, And I know we're doing work for that. But it will, by the time we're very old, at some point, That's it great. will wean itself out. But in the meantime, people that have PCOS have to build a skill set mm -hmm. to deal with their doctor, which is likely going to tell them to lose weight. Right? Yeah, we need to rally together to help each other be able to name the harm and um, come up with different ways or train newer doctors or ones who are willing to see it a different way. Yeah. I had another question. I, I was browsing through your website and I saw that you offer a course on the link between IBS and PCOS. Mm -hmm. Can you, mm -hmm. can you develop a little bit on that? I didn't even know there was a link between the two. Yes. Well, and I will totally be transparent. My IBS is not my um, area of specialty. I um, did that course a number of times with my colleague and friend, Beth Rosen. And Beth is a um, an IBS expert. And um, we connected a few years ago. And um, she's also anti-diet dietitian. And we would, I would often ask her questions about um, IBS. Um, you know, IBS is really common in PCOS. Um, and there's, you know, there's some physiological reasons um, as a possibility, but also because dieting in general, what we know that happens is restriction is really hard on our gut and um, bacterial overgrowth is an issue when people go through times of restriction. And then if they have times of restriction and then binging or eating more, it causes this like um, uh, microbiome biome, uh, 
as you can tell, I'm like trying to figure out the words because I'm like, oh, I can't remember how Beth would always say this part. But basically, it would mess up the GI tract. And for some people with PCOS, it ends up being IBS with diarrhea. Sometimes it's constipation or it's a cycle between the two. And so I'd always be texting <laughs> Beth with my clients like, hey, which one do you recommend for constipation with, with PCOS? And then she would have a lot of clients with IBS who also have PCOS. And she'd text me like, what's that inositol supplement you like? And um, so then we were like, we probably should make something together. Um, but yeah, if you are um, someone with PCOS and have IBS, um, Beth's uh, website is a really great uh, resource. But um, yeah, there's a, a, a lot of connection with IBS and PCOS. And having um, a chance to help your body get enough food is the number one step also in the IBS world. So um, it'll help that as well. And um, having um, finding ways to help lower inflammation is another thing that will help with the gut and PCOS. And so any of the things that I talk about will also help with that too. But, you know, just having extra kind of compassion for yourself if IBS is another part of your, the conditions you're experiencing with, with PCOS. Well, I think it's important to put it out there because people may think it's two separate issue, but it's actually the no. same thing. Oh my gosh, there's so many things that come with PCOS and that's just another one. Yeah. Can we quickly talk about, or take your time, but this whole notion of addressing inflammation mm -hmm. without cutting out food? Because again, mm -hmm. Google inflammation, mm -hmm. it's just like, here's all the things you need to eliminate if you want to reduce your inflammation. Right. Yeah. And inflammation, it is a diet culture buzzword. Yes. Um, when I first was learning how to work with PCOS um, 20 years ago, I was working because I, I had to search for a long time to find even a clinician that would help teach me these things. Um, and nobody was doing weight neutral PCOS care at the time that I could find, except for uh, someone named Monica Woolsey. Um, and she died about four years ago, but she was someone who was talking about the inflammation piece back then. And, um, at, at, every time I heard inflammation, I kind of almost get like a little crick in my neck. Yes, I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't. But, you know, having this hormonal imbalance, it leads to this pro, uh, this chronic pro-inflammatory state. And the thing that's kind of like is a similar kind of word is just inflammation from food. And that's where diet culture loves to come in. And it talks about like gluten or dairy or sugar or carbs or like these are inflammatory. But when it comes down to it, every single food we eat is inflammatory. So like, I don't care what you're cutting out, like, or what you are adding in, like every food has inflammatory properties when we eat it. Like it's like oxygen, breathing, that's inflammatory. It's like a part of being alive. Inflammation itself is not a bad thing. It's just how we are like, it's a part of the loop of us staying alive and using things to keep us alive and then breaking down the, the byproducts and getting rid of them. And um, because of PCOS's hormonal imbalance, it's just the body has to do so much more work. And so it's always catching up. And inflammation, that type of inflammation, um, what we have found is changing things like dairy or um, and by dairy, I don't mean omitting dairy. It's the low dairy, which is two servings a day in these small studies um, or uh, gluten or um, carbs or sugar or lower calorie in a six week kind of um, research study that seems to change uh, markers for inflammation, help, seems to lower it. Um, at the 12 week mark, there most research that recommends, by the way, yeah. cutting out these things, there are only six week studies. Um, when we, we have a few that are 12 weeks long with PCOS, um, and then also the general population and, um, 
the dropout rate in those studies is much higher, but um, it also seems to have some favorable outcomes. But then when we look at ones that are further out, unfortunately, dieting, um, cutting out foods, whether you continue them or not, makes inflammation worse, not better. So I know. So that's why I'm like, be sure you're eating enough. I pounded my table. Did you hear that? Be sure you're eating enough because maybe in the short term, um, it would help. And and by help, I mean just lower inflammation. But in the long term, what research is telling us is it makes it worse. And why that's so important is inflammation predicts disease, especially diabetes. So if, if, and diabetes, frankly, is used as a weapon mm-hmm. in PCOS. And um, if that's something that you're trying to avoid, um, cutting out foods because they're inflammatory is not going to, it's not going to do it. It's just going to make it worse. That is so fascinating because, and it's, it, I can relate it back to the science or the research around dieting. Diet works until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't anymore. Yep. <laughs> so quote, cutting out food to reduce inflammation works until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're in it for the long term, like for the rest of your life, then that's not a solution. And that's what we're seeing in science. Phenomenal. Yeah. And I think it's important for the listeners just to hear that because I do want you to have agency over your body and, and, and informed consent, and, and for especially people with PCOS who are dealing with um, not having access to reproductive medicine, the six-week studies do show some positives with cutting out things um, to help with egg quality. But then, of course, the long-term ones don't. <laughs> and those very um, those short studies, uh, they talk about um, when you know monitoring egg quality with like restriction. They'll, they'll note, I forget how they would note it, but like improved egg quality, but then they'll also say, you know, restriction is not encouraged when try when, um, around the time of conception because of the potential harm and to the developing fetus. Oh, <laughs> so like, it's like, well, you know, we can research this, but we actually can't recommend it because it could actually harm. Yeah. The developing fetus. So anyway, yeah, that the short-term research maybe something, but long-term it can make it worse. And especially for people who are struggling with infertility, I'm like, it's your decision, what you decide to do. We'll talk about infertility, but I just want to okay. point out to the listener before we leave information by, I know we're like, we're such having, like, this is a casual conversation. Like we're all over the place. I hope you guys can follow, but like, you may have to re-listen a couple of times, but before we leave information, one of the big trigger of inflammation is cortisol. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, the chronic, the hormone of stress creates a high level of inflammation. So, yeah, you may have a reduced inflammation when you reduce food, but it's so stressful that it's probably explaining the increase in inflammation long term because it's stressful to reduce cut out food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about fertility because a lot of people will that have PCOS become aware of PCOS because they want to be pregnant. Mm hmm. So what is the role of PCOS infertility? Um, well, I do know it's the number one cause of ovulatory infertility. Okay. And I also know that um, people with PCOS are basically, it seems like they're treated like walking ovaries because, wow. <laughs> um, you know, that it's, uh, there's so much focus on the fertility piece. And, you know, I went through basically all my 30s going through primary and secondary infertility. So like fertility is something that 
and infertility is something that is really close to my heart. And I also appreciate that, like that gets all of the energy on PCOS when it has all these other consequences, even the IBS we just talked about, like most people don't know there's a connection to that. And that is something that keeps people from leaving their house, you know, um, and the mood disorder piece as well. And, um, but yeah, the, with, with PCOS, of course, what happens is, um, because of the high circulating, um, insulin and the high testosterone or other androgens, um, basically the body with PCOS is not able to have, um, release an egg every month. That is like a one dominant egg. And so ovulation is either totally missing or it is just not as strong. And so many people with PCOS are like, I don't even know when I'm going to get my period. <laughs> I get it maybe a couple times a year. Um, if ever, I know a lot of people who are like, I've never had a period on my own without medication. And so doing the things that we talked about earlier to help lower insulin and androgen levels, if that's something that they're wanting to lower, that's something that can help resume cycles. Um, one thing in particular is supplementing with inositol, which inositol is the type of B vitamin that I was alluding to earlier. That's something that has been shown to help um, more, uh, better regulate cycles. And um, some people also need to, to use an insulin sensitizer like metformin along with that to help with cycles. And um, the really cool thing is um, that helps um, a, a really big um, part of the a, a great number of people. I don't know the exact amount, but a, a lot of people I've worked with with PCOS doing inositol with metformin and then sometimes also like a, a letrozole or something like that um, is enough to have um, a cycle and, um, able to, um, get pregnant. Now, of course there's some people that's not enough and they need to do other kind of reproductive medicine. Um, and that's where diet culture can get really intense because again, like even accessing reproductive endocrinology, which are, you know, those are the doctors that, you know, if you're experiencing infertility and you're only working with an OBGYN, um, you know, a reproductive endocrinologist, they can like monitor your cycles to even know when you're ovulating. So, you know, when you need to have sex, <laughs> which is like so much easier when you're having to do all this work. Um, but again, a lot of reproductive endocrinologists won't see you unless you weigh a certain amount or below a certain amount um, because they want they think that it would affect their outcomes. And, um, I'm certainly not an expert on, uh, reproductive endocrinology and nutrition, but my, some of my colleagues I've heard talk about this, how really, um, uh, reproductive endocrinology being okay with working with people over the age of 38, no big mm. deal. And how their outcomes are worse than someone with a higher BMI. Um, and how, like, basically, what do you think about that? <laughs> You know, well, like, that's like weight stigma and it's okay. I know, like, what do you think about your weight stigma then, you know? Um, but it's just not um, challenged, you know? And so that's where a lot of people, again, are are really feeling desperate. I remember I would have cut off my right arm to have a baby. And so that's why I always tell people about that research that I've read so far on like egg quality and like, yeah, short term, it may do something. Long term, it's probably gonna make it worse. But like, you decide what you're going to do, you know? <laughs> and, um, because yeah, if it helps you access getting pregnant without having to go to, um, a doctor that would discriminate against you or won't even see you, then that's a win in my book to be able to not have to use that medication or like reproductive medicine. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Like it's heartbreaking. Like when you put that out there, like 
to know that this is happening and it's okay, it's acceptable to behave like that. It's just, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it is. That's where my hope starts to wane. So I'm I'm thinking yeah. about how you were saying earlier, how you're like, nope, when we're old ladies, I hope this so. is going to be different. <laughs> That's what I'm working towards. Like by the time I'm ready to like go part time, then yeah. the other generation will have it easier. And and it's not going to be the industry. It's not going to be medical industry or the weight loss industry that's going to make the change. It's us. Yeah. Like we have to work on this grassroots movement to like change us and then change the next generation of women who's going to say no to this crap. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm trained as a dietitian. And so I have my hands in like helping to educate newer dietitians. And I am hopeful and how people come into the profession um, more aware of even just what intuitive eating is or non-diet approaches. I had to do a lot of really crappy weight-centric care for, for years before I stumbled upon it. And so that makes me hopeful because people have a 20-year extra, like the 20-year start um, that they can save themselves to like go ahead and get into this like anti-diet space. And um hopefully then get into like places like medical schools. Cause that's what I think it'll start to really change is if uh, medical schools and insurance companies change how they are um, expecting people to behave, then, then it'll change. Yeah. So if a person listening to this has uh, PCOS and they're like, they're stumbling upon you for the first time, what would you say? Like, I, I, I don't like using the word tips, but what would you say three <laughs> things to them to do? Well, besides, I'll probably give you four then because okay, I already gave one. One was like, make sure you're eating enough. And so, um, yeah, don't be skipping meals. Like make sure you're getting yourself enough food. And it's probably more than you think, you know, um, because we have been brainwashed to think we need so little. Um, and then the, the other thing is make sure that you are giving yourself boundaries that um, honor how much rest you need, whether it's in sleep or just space in the day and boundaries to like take care of yourself. Um, I think a lot of people with PCOS do a lot of amazing things and help people and um, are overextended. And that's part of probably the cortisol and inflammation and all that stuff we're talking about, like the stress on their body because of taking care of everybody else. So besides eating enough, then also having boundaries for you that, you know, I don't like using the word healthy, but I just keep thinking like healthy boundaries in a sense of like making sure you have space um, to rest and sleep and, and, you know, do things that you need to do. Um, the second thing has a more nutrition kind of part to it is I do think most people with PCOS probably need more protein. Mm. I don't, I don't say think every single person with PCOS does. I don't know how much, <laughs> but I also don't mean that they need to take anything out, but yes. they probably just need more protein. And that's because of the high insulin levels. That's because of the inflammation. That's because of the recovering from diet culture and the exhaustion. And, um, most people that I work with, with PCOS, when we talk about this, you know, there's, there's like a 12 step kind of system I take people through in my course. And, um, this part about protein, I start off really early on with this one because everybody I've worked with has said, yeah, that helps that like, oh. there's something about it. And again, it varies how much and, um, 
I, you know, I can't see every single person cause I just can't be totally absolute, <laughs> but like, um, but I, it is one of the things that I recommend to everybody to experiment with in some way. And, um, in particular in that first meal, when you wake up, um, within an hour or two of being awake, having, um, protein with whatever you're having, whether it's a pop tart or cereal oatmeal, um, toast, I don't know, whatever you're having at that first meal, having some protein with it too. Um, and just notice what your body does, you know, does it feel any more energy? Does it feel, um, different kinds of cravings and let your body tell you. And then the last thing that I would recommend to anybody is those cravings that you have with PCOS. I really wish you didn't feel ashamed of them. Mm. I wish that you weren't told to like not trust them or to ignore them or trick them or just, you know, I, I wish that you were told that they could be honored and I think they have really important insight. Um, and it may be like physiological insight that, you know, you have that you're not eating enough or you need more sleep um, or you need more protein or you miss a medication or something like that. But also a craving for just needing to um, meet your needs in other ways, like maybe um, there may be feelings associated with it, too. And, um, you know, I think a lot about um, emotional eating and people have this kind of like vilified kind of reaction to emotional eating. And I'm always like, Oh no, 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 no. Like emotional eating, first of all, is super normal. Like every human's going to do it. And it's also super insightful. Like, Hey, that's our brain and our body, like communicating to us that like we have this unmet need. And so with PCOS, the cravings seem to be even more intense. And so I think of it as a superpower, like this is your superpower to let you know that your, your body needs something. And those of us, those of us without PCOS, it's going to be so much more subtle. So it's not going to be like knocking us to sit down, <laughs> but I know it will for you. And so when you have them, um, you know, honor the craving, but then also, um, look at what maybe was going on the last day and see if there's anything in particular it can point you to. So I would really encourage you to, to just notice the cravings and not, not feel shame for them. I love that. We call that here. Emotional eating is a gift. Ooh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I love it. So, um, if people want to work with you, like how do we find you? What do you mm -hmm. offer? Can you take us through that? Yeah, sure. Thank you for letting me share this. Yeah. And, um, so I work with people through my course. I have a, a 12 step system that I take people through and it's a course that is 100% anti-diet. And after working with people for about 10 years, I, I figured out kind of way to, to make intuitive eating work with PCOS. And that's what this is all about is because I, I was working with individuals for so long um, that eventually I was like, well, I, I have this wait list and I can't get to them. So how can I do this? So I recorded everything that I told clients and that's my PCOS and food peace course. So besides the 12 steps, there's also um, monthly coaching calls. I'm actually increasing the amount of coaching calls because I'm adding guest experts in. So there's going to be at least um, a couple coaching calls every month. There's also a podcast within the, the course that I'll be launching this spring. And yeah, it's, it's a system that you basically can do it at your own pace. You can take it really slow or do it all, all at one time. You have access to it for as long as the courses exist. And yeah, you can get all the details at PCOSandFoodPeace.com. And you have a regular podcast as well. Mm -hmm. 
I do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I kind of, how could I forget that? I know. But I have a podcast. It's for people with PCOS and people without PCOS. Um, but if basically if anybody has a complicated relationship with food, um, they write a letter to food and, uh, me and sometimes a guest and Stephanie's going to be on in the future. Um, uh, we, um, sift through a letter and then at the end food writes back. And so that podcast is called love food. Amazing. And you have a special series on PCOS also that I saw on iTunes, right? You did it with yes. Kimmy. Kimmy Singh. Oh my yeah. gosh, yes. Kimmy Singh is one of the most amazing people I know. And Kimmy was a grad student a number of years ago that I had the pleasure of working with, the best student I ever had. Um, and now Kimmy's a dietitian and practices for herself. And Kimmy and I did a, a PCOS and Food Peace podcast a few years ago that you can still listen to. And we, we found 10 people, 10 interesting people with PCOS that some of you may may know um, and never knew that they had PCOS. And they just talk about their experience with it, like what it's like to live with it. And um, we really, we designed it because we didn't, we want people to know that they're not alone and that you can get support through this kind of like connection and community. Normalization is always the first place that I start, right? Yeah. And that, that kind of podcast is so good for that. Thank you. Thank awesome. You. So we'll put the links to as much as we can of all of this, but at least your website, <laughs> your podcast, and the program you offer in the show notes. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it. There you have it, ladies. You got to forward this episode to anyone in your life that has PCOS. And you got to ask yourself, if you have any other health condition, where else is diet culture putting his nose into your treatment plan? And what else is there out there? I love you, my sister. And I look forward to see you on the next episode. Hey, you, if you enjoy listening to this show, you have to come and check Conquer and Try. It's my monthly coaching program that comes with expert courses that will show you exactly how to take this life-changing work and apply it into your own life. We teach you how to change your mindset, eat intuitively, and master body confidence. That you've decided to stop dieting today or years ago, Conquer and Thrive will help you take this knowledge deeper into real-life practices. It comes with access to me as your coach and my team of experts. Join us by simply going to www.stephaniedodzie.com forward slash join. I can't wait to meet you inside our Conquer and Thrive community. I'll see you on the other side.